What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 114 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Johnny FD. He is the host of the podcast Travel Like a Boss. He is the author of 12 Weeks in Thailand, Good Life on the Cheap, and Life Changes Quick. He's a really cool dude I bumped into here in Chiang Mai. He's a digital nomad who has an interesting story of how he got to where he is today. You know, like many of us out there who are struggling with our life situations and wanting something different. And then going out there and actually making it happen is a big step, which his story is super inspiring. He made it happen for himself, and he's making very, very good money as he continues on this path, living in Thailand, living all around the world, just doing some really cool stuff, diving in some cool places, which is what his passion is. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone and hit subscribe. If you like this episode, please rate it and comment on the episode after you finish it. I really appreciate that. It helps me in the ratings on iTunes and any podcast player you're listening to this on. It really helps me just get this message out there of inspirational people doing cool things to design the life that they've always wanted for themselves. If you want to follow me and my guests, you can follow us on Instagram. And if you want to support the podcast, you can do that on Patreon at Misfits and Rejects. A monthly donation, whatever you want, it's all appreciated, not expected. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Johnny F.D. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners... A lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Johnny FD up here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, an individual who I saw speak and was really connected with what he had to say. He's a digital nomad, been a digital nomad for a long time, built a very successful life for himself thus far, meaning that he can sustain himself on the road and, and, and is really good about being transparent with how he does it. And I thought he'd be great to come on and just kind of let you guys hear how he's doing it, what he's doing, and and how you might be able to do the same thing. So, Johnny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's fun. When I saw the title of your podcast, I was like, you know what? At first, I was like, I don't know if I want to identify as a misfect or, or reject. <laughs> but I was like, you know what? I, I, I kind of am. Like, my whole life, I never really felt like I fit into the U.S. And I feel like coming to Thailand trying to figure out who I am, trying to figure out my authentic self and what really actually makes me happy, that is a path I'm sure a lot of people are on. 100%, man. You couldn't have been, yeah, you said it perfectly. I think that that's the hard first step, though, is you first have to accept that maybe you don't fit into your environment and then it's kind of futile to try mm-hmm. and you'd be better off going out and searching for a place you do fit in or maybe searching for a network of people or whatever. So... Maybe we could touch upon real quickly. I know you grew up in San Francisco. What was your life like growing up in San Francisco? Yeah, it's funny when I meet people while traveling and they hear I grew up in San Francisco, they're like, oh, wow, you know, it must be such a cool place. Or, oh, California, it must be so beautiful. But growing up, like, my childhood sucked. I grew up in a big city. My parents worked all the time. They would leave for work at 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And I would take the public bus to school by myself as soon as fourth grade. So I was, you know, I don't even know, like 11, 12 years old. And I was on a, on a bus with home, like drunk homeless people, like bums, crackheads. Sometimes I would get, you know, robbed on the, on the bus and try to get home. And it wasn't a nice childhood. You know, it wasn't like the childhood where you grew up, you know, you can just kind of be free, go to the neighbors, ride your bicycle. You know, there was none of that. And it wasn't the cool tech culture it is now, you know, especially first off, I wasn't 21, so I couldn't drink, I couldn't go to bars, I wasn't in tech, I wasn't doing any of the cool stuff. I was literally just a child in a big city. And I think the other reason why I never really fit in there was, I mean, I, I mean, part of it is just growing up as a first generation immigrant, you know, my parents, you know, hardly spoke English when I was growing up. Um, I didn't. And they were really strict. So I had these rules growing up. I couldn't use the phone. So I would meet a friend, you know, in fifth grade and I wasn't allowed to call them and they weren't allowed to call me. So I couldn't go to their house. They couldn't come over. And it was just a really strange childhood. You know, and I think that's a big reason why 
when I finally had the freedom, not only going away to college uh, in Southern California, but also coming out to Thailand for the first time, that's when I really embraced it. And I thought, this is the life I missed out on. That's cool, man. Where uh, did you go to college? Uh, UC Irvine, which was ironically a uh, like my last choice, but the, it was the best school I can get into. But it wasn't where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to UC Santa Barbara. And for anyone who doesn't know what California is like, Santa Barbara is kind of the surf town. And it's in the middle. It's, you know, it's not LA or San Francisco. It's kind of in the middle where no one really goes. You know, people go, people live there, obviously go to school or to surf. But I felt so, I was so afraid of stepping out of my bubble and being the only Asian person in the whole university, which I'm, I'm sure I wasn't, you know, wasn't even going to be the first or the only one. I think I was just so used to growing up in a city where, you know, there were like people that looked like me and culture were like me that I was so afraid that it wouldn't be accepted. And it's so stupid and silly now because now I've traveled everywhere in the world. I've lived in random countries where don't, I don't even speak the language. You know, pretty often I am the only Asian person, you know, or definitely the only Asian American in sometimes the whole country or the whole city. You know, like I spent three months in Ukraine and there's definitely no, you know, not, not many at least, you know, other you know, people that look like me. But I don't even notice it anymore because... First, I, I, I think I finally realized it doesn't matter. You know? And I think growing up, I don't know if it even mattered then to others or if it just mattered to myself or I thought it mattered to others. Right. No, I hear you, dude. Um, what were your aspirations when you did go to like UC Irvine to become what? To do what? I had no aspirations. I thought I had to just go to college because that's what, you know, what I had to do. I almost... The only real like re- reason I even went was my best friend at City College got into UCLA, and I thought, well, I should go somewhere too. And I couldn't get into UCLA because it's a better school, so I thought, okay, I can just go to you know UC Irvine. But what's funny is even community college, it wasn't my choice to go there. It was just after high school, I thought I didn't know what else to do, and that's kind of the next step is go to college. I completely regret wasting those five years because it's not that going to college is, is always a waste of time, but it is if you don't know what you want, you don't know what to study. I thought of it as a, a time to kind of experiment and figure out who I was. <clears throat> but I probably could have gotten a 20 times better experience for half the price if I went to volunteer somewhere in the world or travel. And it's not that I would recommend someone turn 18 and then come to Thailand and backpack for a year because if I was 18 and I had, you know, I took the $20,000 I would have spent on college to come to Thailand, I probably would have wasted it on partying and, you know, drinking and I probably wouldn't have actually learned anything. So it's almost kind of good that I did it when I did, but there had to have been a better way. Can I ask what you studied? I mean, yeah, but it's, it's almost irrelevant. I mean, <laughs> I studied, well, all of our degrees are irrelevant. It really <laughs> is, you know. And so one of my goals is the day I become a net worth millionaire, mm-hmm. I want to contact every news channel and say, you know, I'm a millionaire. I want to come on um, your show and burn my diploma on air just to prove how useless it is and how little it's helped my life. What was it in there? It was social science. Okay. Which... I mean, I literally chose because it was the easiest of the degrees. Uh, I think if I was interested in a STEM degree, science, technology, engineering, or math, it would have been very beneficial. Unfortunately, I wasn't interested in any of that, you know, any of that, or I, I didn't think I could do any of that. So aside from knowing exactly like what you want, and especially if it's, you know, something that has kind of a, a direct correlation, you know, like let's say you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you kind of have to go to school for that. And I think that's a good good investment. But I, my advice to anyone listening is if you don't know what you want to do and it's not a STEM degree, don't even bother going. It's, it's a waste of time and money. So then, I mean, it sounds like you went five years and you still came out with not a real good idea what you wanted to do. Yeah. So what'd you do? So I got a corporate job because I thought I had to. That's the next <laughs> step. And I worked for this company called Honeywell, big U.S. company. Had a you know shirt and tie on yeah. every every morning. Would, I would iron my Kirkland signature, white dress shirt, put on a tie, drive to work, sit in a cubicle, and t- 
two years into it, I realized like, what am I doing? This is, you know, I'm not, I'm not fulfilling my life. I'm getting, I aged so quick in those two years. I think, you know, the, all the drive I had and all the excitement I had of, you know, being young, it just left, you know, I'm pretty sure I stopped working out. I just, I was trying to look older because everyone else in my company was, you know, in the forties. So I, I like physically and just mentally aged and I started, you know, like I started acting like a 45 or 55 year old man in my mid twenties and I started looking like it too. You know, I got out of shape. I stopped doing any hobbies. You know, I got rid of my sports car and I got, you know, I got a sedan because I thought that's what people, people should get. And it wasn't until I went to Thailand on a, just a vacation, you know, it was a two and a half, three week vacation that I realized, wow, none of that stuff back home mattered. Like none of the things that I was doing. And, you know, and to be fair, if you looked at my social media back then, it looked like I was having fun. You know, I would go, you know, to the cool bars or clubs every weekend. You know, I was living up in LA at the time. Uh, you know, I would be taking photos with hot girls, you know, with bottle service and wearing, you know, cool clothes, you know. Unfortunately, at the time, it was also, looking back, it was really douchey clothes. You know, lots of Ed Hardy, <laughs> lots of rhinestones. And it, it wasn't me, you know. It was who I thought I should be or I, who I thought would impress other people, who I thought would get the girl. And even that, I, I re realized the only reason why I tried so hard to fit in or be cool or get, have a hot girlfriend was because I felt like if I didn't have that, I would be useless. That, you know, that, that wouldn't be good enough and there'd be no reason for me to, to even be around. Right. I mean, it sounds, I mean, that's, I think, a lot, a lot of people feel, you know, and, and then to have... Sounds like did it was it like a light bulb moment or was it like a gradual kind of thing that grew inside of you when you did come to Thailand and had this kind of profound experience here? I think the the downward spiral was like a long spiral. You know, it was many many years of you know feeling not good enough. You know, feeling like I needed to be someone else. You know, getting rejected. You know, like trying to get a girl's phone number or. You know, I just, that, that was a long spiral, but the, the moment, the kind of the upward spiral, I guess, the, the moment of clarity came really quickly. I mean, first it was definitely within those three weeks of being in Thailand. So right then it was, you know, it was days instead of years, but the moment I can really hone down on was the first day I went scuba diving. It was called discovery scuba diving. It wasn't a certification. It was literally someone holding your hand underwater. And after, I mean, that moment even, of just jumping in the water. And I gave a talk about this at the last Nomad Summit. I described the experience of like jumping through the Stargate, you know, where you, you're on a boat, you have all this heavy gear on, and you're thinking, like, what am I doing? This is, I'm going into the unknown. And you take a big, giant step, you, you know, you're, you're falling a few feet off the boat, this big splash, you're discombobulated, you have no idea which way is up or down. And then you take a breath and you realize, oh, I, can, I can actually breathe. This is, this is not expected. And then you open your eyes and once the bubble's clear, you realize you can see. And once you relax, you realize you're floating mid, mid air, you know, or, you know, mid water. And you start swimming and you realize, wow, I'm weightless. And you look around and you realize, wow, this is a whole new world. This is a place that no one ever told me I can visit. I didn't know this was possible. I didn't, I didn't know it was possible for me. And I was angry. I was really pissed off. And I think it was because I knew that I almost went my whole life without ever experiencing that. No one had ever told me that was possible for me. I never thought it was an option. And if it wasn't, you know, for me, you know, going on that trip that almost didn't happen because I almost canceled it multiple times. You know, if it wasn't for me walking by that dive shop and seeing that sign that said discover scuba diving, if it wasn't for everything kind of lining up, I would have missed this. And I would have spent my whole life working in a cubicle, trying to be someone who I wasn't, 
and being unhappy. How old were you when this happened? I was 27. 27. Still very young, I mean, compared to a lot of people, you know, out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, looking back, you know, I'm glad I started, you know, when I did. But at the same time, I felt like I wasted, you know, I, I, I honestly feel like I wasted a lot of those 27 years. Mm. I mean, I can relate, dude. Like 17, I did, you know, the first 17 in the same way, like not that stoked on my situation. Not that I had a bad situation, but then having an awakening as well. Mine happened in the Louvre in Paris. I was lucky enough to have my dad take me on an adventure to Europe. And, you know, I can definitely relate to that. What were the steps that you took after you had that kind of moment of clarity to start, I guess, breaking free or walking away from that life that you were unhappy in? I was really fortunate that I had read and then reread the four-hour work week on the plane. And I remembered the steps that he outlined. And this is why I give so much credit to Tim Ferriss and I recommend you know the four hour work week to pretty much everyone that I meet. And I remember those because you know, I, I think if it wasn't for reading that book, I would have been too afraid of trying to figure out you know this life or this path on my own. But because he had done it already and he outlined the questions to ask, the the kind of the formula, it made me it, it made me more confident that I can do it myself. And I think this is why. Now I blog so openly about everything I'm doing is because I want to give others who are starting out, who are, you know, who are beginning their journey, that same ch- fighting chance. You know, I'm never going to do the work for someone else, and I can't guarantee someone will be successful. But what I can do is leave breadcrumbs and be transparent about what I've done and what's worked for me and what I'm doing now. So then, if they want to follow along, they, they can. That's really rad, dude. Thanks for doing that for all of us because I, I appreciate it for sure. Um, what? When did you quit? When did you say this? Like, I'm I'm done with this job, and you moved to Thailand, and you gave this you know the swing of the bat, the go that you were um, had been reading about. So uh, at the on the boat itself, it was a three hour boat ride from land. It was uh, I was staying in Phuket, but the island was called Rachayai. I was really lucky that it was a a long boat ride, so I had all this time to think after the dive. And I remember talking to my instructor, this guy named Rene Christophe, this Swiss French guy, and I said, you know, hey, how you know, how how do you live in Thailand? Like how did you make the move? And he told me a story. He said, you know, ten years ago he he left uh, Switzerland and he, he moved here to be a dive master than a dive instructor. And I basically just, you know, asked him a million questions about how I could do it. And I could tell he was a bit annoyed because I'm sure he, people ask this to him all the time and then very few people ever do it. <laughs> so I, I, you know, gathered a bit of knowledge and then I, I remember, I, th- I think I sat down and, you know, in the boat somewhere, I, I found a, a pen and paper and I just started writing out everything I needed to do. So the first was I wrote, I wrote out, if everything fails, how long would it take me to get back on track and what my plan was. So I figured out, okay, with housing, I can live with my parents for a few months while I get another job, you know, even though I don't ever want to do that again, something that I can do, you know, I can, you know, always work, buy another car, I can buy new clothes. And then I thought, okay, what do I need to do now? So I wrote, you know, a letter to my roommate at the time because, you know, we were sharing a house together and he had just signed a second year's lease to renew our our contract and I felt really bad for just leaving him hanging, especially because it was actually my idea to re-sign the lease before I went to Thailand, even though it wasn't due until two days after I got back. And the reason why I did that was I was so afraid of kind of the lack of stability or security that the idea of going on vacation, even though it was only for two or three weeks and coming back, not knowing if, the landlord would extend for another year would have ruined my vacation. And it's silly thinking that because why wouldn't the landlord want another year's you know, rent? But I was so afraid of not having security that I made my landlord re-sign the lease before I went, which ultimately ended up screwing me financially because then we had to pay, you know, fines and, and things. But, um, I remember writing him a letter, my roommates, just saying, I'm so sorry, but here are their options. You know, I can find you another roommate. Uh, I can, you know, I, 
like I'll give you all the furniture that we split, and that way financially at least you have the upper hand. And I basically just tried to make it right, you know. And it, I'm sure he was pissed off, but at the end of the day, you know, I knew this was this was better for me, and I just had to do it. So yeah, I basically just followed the steps. You know? So so that step was then okay, um, getting rid of. Everything back in the states, and then what time frame did you give yourself to then come back to Thailand and, and start this venture? So my original time frame that I gave myself, I think it was going to be six months, or maybe seven. Yeah, because that's what logically made sense. You know, I can go back, take my time, sell my stuff, you know, save up some money. But I remember as soon as I went back and I told a few people about my plan, I started. Getting bombarded with doubts on why I shouldn't do this, and I remember it wasn't even important people that I, I who I valued their opinion. It was just like a friend of a friend or like an acquaintance, and they would all of a sudden bring up a million reasons why I shouldn't go. They would, you know, and they would ask questions like, "Well, what if when you come back, your skills, you know, for your job is you know depleted, and I have to you know relearn, or you can go back to school for it, or how are you gonna explain the gap in your resume?" Or, you know, what are you going to do about, you know, healthcare? You know, now that, you know, you're going to be gone without health insurance. What are you going to do about when your visa expires? You know, or what are you going to do when your passport expires? And then you have to come back and reapply for the passport. And all these questions that I honestly didn't have the answer to. And I chose not to think about it. Partially because I knew it would bog me down and I just would never do it. But also because I knew it didn't really matter. You know, I knew that. You know, like my passport didn't expire for another, set, you know, six seven years. Like, why should I? Work? Like, yeah, I should probably have a plan for that at some point. You know, am I going to go back to the U.S. to get another passport, or should I just not think about it for six or seven years until it actually expires? Or you know, and these are things that your friends and your family and even acquaintances will tell you that part of it is you know. They mean well, right? Part of it is they don't want you getting stuck in a bad situation, but a bigger part of it is them reflecting their own fears on you and finding out a way where it doesn't make sense for you to go. Because if it makes sense for you to go, or if you if you figure out a way out, it's a bad reflection on them on why they couldn't figure out a way. And I don't like to be. Kind of that negative on people, but the long, like the more time has passed, the more I realized people. Pretty much, I would say ninety-five percent of people that I've spoken to back home, whether it's my you know, family members, my aunts, my uncles, or friends of friends, or just you know people I, I knew, almost all of them had non-encouraging or negative things to say when I first went, and it wasn't until. I started actually making more money while traveling than I was back home, and this you know this took me six or seven years. So it was a long journey of just you know negative doubt. And every time we went back, they would say, you know, are you going to give up and come back to the real world yet? Are you going to, you know, get back to reality? Are you going to get a real job? It was it was really difficult to endure that for. That many years, especially because I had a lot of doubts and you know, and financially I wasn't secure, and I didn't know if it was the right move or not. You know, it took a long time to figure out if I was even doing the right thing. And I would like to think that you know they would have saw that I was happy and they would have supported me, but it really didn't happen until I like financially proved them wrong, and then all of a sudden. They would say, "Yeah, I always believed in you. I was always supporting you." <laughs> This is such a beautiful story, dude. Thank you so much for sharing the way you are, because I think there's a lot of people, including myself, who can relate. And I've had a great supportive family, but you know, it's right. Like somehow, once that money, you know, is added to the equation that you you are financially secure and successful, then like, oh yeah, like totally knew you could do it, or you know, like you you're you're doing the right thing, you know. It's just so interesting how that works, but I mean, congratulations, dude! I mean, for enduring that kind of like difficulty, dude. I mean, everyone has self doubt, and to have you know ones you love doubting you as well throughout those years probably wasn't easy. But so it took six to seven years then to kind of get to where you're at. 
Yeah, it took a long time. I mean, to be fair, I wasn't tr- actively trying to make money the first four years. I was working as a dive master, which is basically an underwater scuba diving guide. And my goal was to be able to, to just pursue my passion, to follow what made me happy. Because remember, growing up, I never had any passions. I always felt like I was left out. Everyone else I knew loved basketball. They loved watching baseball or football. They loved, you know, baseball cards or fantasy football or or all these other like things that I just never cared about. You know, I tried. I really tried to like these things, and I never uh, I never cared about them. I was never passionate about it. I didn't like playing it. I didn't like watching it. I didn't like talking about it. I definitely didn't like talking about a fantasy version of you know, the game because I just didn't understand it, which wasn't my thing. And you know, then it scuba diving was the first time I, I really felt like this is something that I want to do every day. I want to wake up. I'm excited about it. I want to talk about it. And for four years, it was the best time of my life. I would literally wake up, put on my board shorts, you know, walk out on to a usually a white sand beach, hop onto a boat, you know, with a bunch of dive gear, meet cool people from around the world that had come, you know, to go diving, show them around, just show them cool fish, get excited about it, uh, have a buffet lunch either on the boat or back of the resort that was included because you know, as staff, you know, you got to eat with the guests. And then go for another dive, come back, have a beer over the sunset, and have dinner that was usually included as well. Or if I was, you know, depending on which where I was working, you know, sometimes you would, you know, go to like a local, you know, Thai restaurant with your, you know, like your new friends that you made, and they would want to buy you drinks. It was just like it was a great life, like it really was. And I did this not only in Thailand, but you know, I went to Borneo, uh, I went to, you know, to Bali, I went to Australia, I went to the Caribbeans, and I got to dive in some of the coolest places in the world for free while getting my accommodation or my food paid for, or at least enough money to, to cover it, you know, and it was a blast. Like, I really encourage everyone you know, to follow that for a few years before you even start thinking about money, because I think there's too many people who, you know, come to Thailand and right away they want to start an online business, even though their heart's not in it yet, you know, and I can tell that they need to get things out of the system first because yeah, I guess, you know, they're talking about starting an online business, but then four days a week, you, you, can, you can see them, you know, going to waterfalls or going to a pool or like going out partying because they haven't got that out of their system yet. That's an interesting point of view um, in the sense that like it came to a point, it sounds like, where your passion was either not, you weren't as passionate about it, or the money thing became such a significant drive in your life that you had to shift gears or something like that. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah, so it was kind of a a mixture where at the end of, I think, the third year of of diving, and for some people, they might think, oh, three years isn't that long. You know, I worked at my job for 10 or 20 or whatever. But that scuba diving is like every day you're you're in the water, you're like you, it's 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 an active three years. You know, I, I did a calculation, and I realized that because I spent so much time underwater, it's been the equivalent of an entire month of my life underwater. And it's just it's rough on the body. You know, you're waking up early. You know, you're like and you know you're responsible for people's lives. So it was really fun, but then after three years, I realized, okay, I have no money at all in the bank. You know, I can get by, but I can't, you know, I can't afford to save anything. I can't afford to travel. I can't even afford to buy new scuba diving gear. So I thought the next logical step was to take the, the courses to become a, an actual instructor where I can start certify new people and be a teacher. So I went through that, that process you know, I spent the last couple thousand dollars I had, you know, I flew to the Caribbean to do it and I regretted it pretty much instantly. Uh, first, it killed my love for the passion because it became all about business and regulations and, 
like filling out you know liability forms, making sure your students fill out the liability forms, upselling them to the next course, convincing them to become an instructor as well. Like it was just like it just wasn't a nice experience. And my entire training was all about that and not actually how to teach. So when they threw me into my first class, I realized I have no idea how to teach anything because they didn't, they didn't teach us how to teach. And after that kind of mock, mock class, they're like, okay, you know, now get out of here. There's no jobs for you on this island because all we do is certify new people. Uh, so I had to go back to Thailand with no skills, no ability to, you know, not knowing how to teach, but I had this new $3,000 certification under my belt. And I went, you know, dive shop to dive shop begging for a job. I said, I'll do it for free. I just need the experience. And they all looked at me they're like, no, like we don't like, we're not going to spend our time and money training you. Like you need to pay us to learn how to, you know, to be an intern. You have to do a paid internship. And I really felt like it was just like one big kind of money-making wheel for Patty and these dive centers. And I just, I, I, I was so angry. I remember actually just writing a, a really like scathing bad review of the dive shop that I went to. And that asshole ended up su- like trying to sue me for, you know, writing a negative review. And they had TripAdvisor take it down because, you know, and then they had, like, they tried to tear me apart, you know, and... They like, you know, basically just had, it was just like a really bad experience. And at the end of the day, I was just a customer. I was a paying customer saying, hey, don't go with you to the dive center. These guys are assholes. And when I got these cease and desist letters from, from both Patty and from you to the dive center, I was afraid because I was broke. I had just paid all this money to get a certification and they're threatening. They basically, they made me sign a contract saying I would never say anything bad about them. And I didn't realize that included, I can't write a, a bad review or they'll take away my certification I just paid for. So it was just a fucking mess. And all of a sudden I went from loving diving to hating it, you know, being, being scared and then not being able to even, you know, work as one because now I was too qualified to be a, a dive master and I didn't want to go back to working for $600 a month and barely getting by. I wanted to be able to be an instructor, you know, and that was the whole reason why I spent the money to do it, to not having the experience to do it and just not having any, any way out. And it, it, it was a really hard time in my life. How long did that last for before you kind of picked yourself up out of it and, and moved on? It was a few months. Uh, it, it was, you know, maybe two months on utility itself, that, that Caribbean island. Mm. And the best thing I did was instead of... Uh, staying there, you know, and just being stressed. I thought, well, I'm here already. The best thing I can do is just backpack for a month and just, you know, clear my mind. So I went to Guatemala. It's a really beautiful place. Uh, it was just because every single person I had met on that island had said they, you know, they had gone through Guatemala and how amazing it was. It was more like their favorite place they've ever been. So that was a really good experience is, you know, being in Central America already, and getting to see, you know, how beautiful like, little villages like Atalan was, or going up to these waterfalls called Chamoc Sampei, seeing the old Mayan ruins of Tikal, that was really beautiful. You know, I definitely regretted getting my instructor certification, you know, going to Nutella, diving with these guys. Uh, so I went back to Thailand. I spent, you know, the little money I had left, flew back to Thailand, back to Koh Tao, which is kind of known as the like the, the beginner diver's paradise. There's 50 dive shops in one small island. It's probably more now. And I basically just went door to door. And it still took me over, I think, six weeks of literally going daily. I just refused to give up. I think most people would have, went, you know, gave up, went back, got a normal job, and they would have gave up on their dreams. And this is what pissed me off so much about these guys is... I felt like I was just getting, I got robbed. I felt like they sold me a dream of being an instructor. And, you know, and obviously, you know, their rebuttal was like, oh, we never promised you a job, you know, like this, you know, this blah, blah, blah. But they know what they're doing. They know they're certifying way, you know, they're certifying, you know, 50 people a month. And there's only three instructors or 10, you know, maybe 10 instructors at any shop, you know, and it's just, it's just this, like a, 
it's a system kind of set up for for people to fail, mm. you know. And it's not like entrepreneurship where if you fail, it's it's because you know. I mean, at least you have your own shot, you know. Like if you start a business on your own, yeah, not everyone's going to succeed, but at least that that's up to you. You know, you have your own shot. You don't have to beg someone for a job. While within the diving industry, unless you're going to open your own dive shop, which is probably not going to happen, you're kind of reliant on getting a job from someone else. And if there's way more instructors getting certified every month than there are jobs opening every month, it's someone's going to get screwed. And it's like 90% of people are getting screwed. So at what point did you say, okay, this isn't for me? Like, well, I mean, obviously I know why you said it wasn't for you, but then when did you get that final push to say, okay, now it's time to move online and what am I going to do to make online business a, a viable option for myself? Well, I was really lucky that before just finally giving up, I kind of sold my soul and uh, I finally I, I met one dive shop that said, oh, you speak Chinese? And I was like, uh, kind of. And they're like, well, we desperately need Chinese instructors because we have all this new influx of Chinese tourists. And I, and I said, I was like, my Chinese isn't that good. You know, like I have no idea how to even say scuba diving in Chinese. <laughs> you know, I said, I could, I could have a casual conversation, but like there's, there's no way I can teach. And his response was, your Chinese is better than mine. Like, go come teach a class. <laughs> so I ended up doing that for about a year and I got the experience. So I actually did get a and I ended up teaching for a okay. year or two, uh, but it still, I mean, it still was a kind of a rough, rough experience. Um, but what it was is even though I knew now, you know, I can make enough money to kind of save a bit. I was really trading my time for money. I wasn't, I wasn't loving it anymore. I wasn't passionate about it. And I remember talking to, you know, these older instructors, you know, and, to see how unhappy they were. They were always complaining. They were always moaning about, you know, basically just bitching about life. And I used to think, I don't want to, I don't want to get there in their shoes. I don't want to wake up 50 years old, still on this Island, you know, with a bunch of 25 year old backpackers, 20 year old backpackers, and just, you know, hating my life and just like ruining their day. <laughs> so I knew I had to do something else. And that's when I moved to Chiang Mai. Actually, I first do Muay Thai. You know, I figured, let me just do this, you know, this sport again, shape. If I'm going to go back to the U.S., let me at least be in shape. Like, let, let me let me have something to show for it. Um, so I did Muay Thai for about a year or two. Had six fights. And... Just living off savings? Uh, it was like, I mean, yeah, I guess I had some savings left from, from working as an instructor for a while. Uh, a lot of it was just living as cheap as possible. I was living in a hut, like a literal bamboo hut for, I think it was, I want to say it was a thousand five hundred baht a month, just $45. You know, I had no bathroom. I had, you know, I had a, just a, like an extension cord running into my hut. I had, I slept on the floor, um, but it was in the backyard of the gym. So it was, it was was my fair, you know, it was fine. Right. And I ate dollar Thai food every day and I would compete and I would make usually between 5,000 to 10,000 baht per fight, which isn't that much money. It's 150 to 300 bucks. And it was just kind of enough to get by. And it, I had realized, you know, after my sixth fight, you know, I'm really getting like you know, pretty seriously injured, you know, just like I was beat up and broken nose. I think I fractured my foot. I realized I was like, I can't do this. I can't keep fighting for <laughs> a couple hundred bucks. Like this isn't, this isn't going to end well. And that's when I decided I need to, I need to do something else. So I Googled, how do you make money online? And led me <laughs> down a rabbit hole. Yeah. You talked about all the different ways and I like how you broke it down for all the, the, the newbies of the, the digital nomad scene, which is like, they are, there's this list of things you can do to actually make money in this time frame, which was, I think like three months, like you could probably make money within the next two months doing these things. And then there's these things, which is more like building a brand and building a business, which is going to take you probably like five years. So like start here and then work towards the brand building, you know, down the line after you get yourself you know, financially more viable, which I liked. Um, what did you choose to start with? I pu- published a book and 
I think I just like looked through a list of possible ways to make money online. And one of them was like, you know, writing an ebook. And this was when Amazon Kindle just started getting popular. You know, it what be- year is this? This was 2012. Okay. Maybe two, beginning of 2013. And I remember it was the first time kind of in history that self-publishing was relatively easy. So I locked myself in my apartment that was directly opposite the Muay Thai gym. I think it was 4000 baht a month. So it was about $120 US a month. And, or maybe, yeah, maybe a bit more. It was, it was a relatively cheap. I like, I think my, my cost of living back then were, was just a few hundred dollars, but I didn't have that much left, you know? And I thought, okay, I can probably survive if I just live as cheap as possible. Uh, I didn't have a motorbike. I never took a taxi for months. I would just walk to the supermarket, buy food, come, come back to my room and just type. And I did that for two months, published this book. 12 Weeks in Thailand, The Good Life on the Cheap. It was all about those first four years of my life, really broken down to, to 12 weeks at a time, you know, because that's, you, my, my, my life was kind of like, I would go somewhere for three months, work in one dive resort, and then hear about a better place, move to that one, you know, find, find out about Muay Thai, go do that for three months, have a fight, go back to scuba diving. It was just kind of a, a, a really fun journey. I'm glad I wrote that book because it, it's something that you know I want to reread once every five years, even myself, just to relive those moments. And I'm glad it's out there for everyone because anyone who's just starting out, that maybe if you're not necessarily interested in you know starting a business right away and making money, and you're just like, I just want to enjoy life. I just want to follow my passions and you know do cool things for a few years. That's the book I would tell people to read. It's still online. It's still online. It. Yeah, people get it. People still write reviews about it, you know, every month saying like, hey, thanks so much for, for this book. This is exactly what I wanted. That's amazing. So, I mean, that was written in 2012-ish or published yeah. in 2012. And what do you still make uh, in passive income on it? So, I still make between 50 bucks. I was on average $50 a month from that book, uh, which, you know, isn't a ton of money. But when you, when you add it up... Um, that's no marketing. That's just it's that's zero marketing. marketing. Yeah, that's yeah. just on Amazon. You know, and it's because it's a good book. People write reviews. People share it with their friends, and then once in a you know blue moon, you know somebody will like will, will ask about it. But this is what's nice about passive income is that's something I wrote five or six years ago now. That in the beginning when it was new and kind of hot, it would make me two hundred dollars a month. You know, which wasn't enough to live in Thailand, but it was it was getting close. It was, you know, a, a significant amount of money. And even now when I don't need that income stream necessarily, it's a nice addition because, you know, as I'm, as I broke down in my, my talk at the, at the Nomad Coffee Club, all these inc- passive income streams add up and why wouldn't you do it? You know, if you can work for two months, five years ago and continue to, to get a check for, you know, two months of work five years ago, maybe, you know, possibly for the rest of your life, but at least, you know, for the next five, 10 years, why wouldn't you do it? Absolutely. Then what was your next venture after that? So I had realized, even though it was nice making $200 a month from the book to live even cheaply in Thailand, I would need to write two more books. And I didn't first, you know, that, that was a lot of work. You know, that's going to be another four months of my life. And then I would kind of still be just, just be getting by. So I was looking for something that can replace an actual U.S. salary. You know, back in the U.S., I was making 50 grand a year. But after taxes, maybe that's, you know, three grand a month or something. And I thought if I can make that while living in Thailand, I would be set. And that would allow me to move back to the U.S. if I wanted to. It would allow me to travel. So I wanted to start an actual business. You know, I wanted to sell... I wanted to sell physical products. And I remember asking a bunch of people saying, this is what I want. I don't know if this exists, but I want to sell physical products. And everyone said, like, no, that's a terrible idea. You're going to have to spend all this money importing. You're going to have to you know, get a warehouse. You're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do that. And they're like, you should do SEO instead, or you should learn how to program instead, or you should do this instead. And I just kept looking. I just kept, you know, ignoring, you know, Everyone's everyone's thoughts because I, I knew there had to be something, 
And it wasn't until I met this guy named Anton who was helping me, you know, basically giving me ideas on how I could sell more books. And when he finally, it was finally his turn to talk about, you know, what he was doing. So I think, so basically what happened was I met this guy on Facebook somehow. I think it was a, a Facebook group or actually it wasn't even a Facebook group back then. It was, I think it was a forum for people who read the four hour work week. And there wasn't that many people. So we had connected. He had saw I was living in Thailand or in Chiang Mai. And he messaged me saying, Hey, do you know of a, a good gym in Chiang Mai? You know, and I saw he was interested in the four hour work week and business. So I said, yeah, but you know, here's, here's the info. This is the gym I go to. Uh, do you want to meet for dinner? And over dinner, he helped, you know, he gave me a ton of ideas on how I could sell more books. You know, he said, yeah, you could probably scale up your, your book sales from $200 a month to 300 a month or 400 a month by doing, you know, these things, you know, better, better title, better optimization, all these things. And he was really smart. You know, I, I, just, I knew he, I could just tell he knew what he was talking about. So when I asked what he did and he said, oh, I sell, you know, expensive items online. And I was like, how you, like, you, I was like, are you taking a break? You know, he's like, no, I'm doing it from here while traveling. And he explained to me that the, the model was called drop shipping, where you would, instead of buying physical items, having it in the warehouse and then shipping it after someone buys an item, you basically just become an authorized dealer for a brand or, or a company, you know, for a product. And you list on your website, people, when, after people buy it, you know, and they pay you, you basically just send an email to that supplier and say, okay, can you send this item to this person directly? You know, another word for it would be you know, direct from, from manufacturer, you know, and it's almost like, imagine if you bought a, um, let's say you bought a, like a MacBook from bestbuy.com, but the box comes from Apple, directly from Apple. You're like, no one's going to really freak out thinking like, oh, why, why isn't it in a Best Buy, Best Buy box? They're just happy it came directly from the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. But I would do it, you know, for like big furniture items, usually items costing, you know, 300 to $3,000. Nice. And so that's kind of where you really started seeing money come in. Yeah. That was the first time I had replaced my nine to five income. Uh, I think the first month I made, well, first month I made nothing. First, second month I made nothing. Third month, you know, cause it took a while to learn the system and then wrap it up. But the third month, the first month I actually started making sales. I think I made $1,500. And I was ecstatic, you know, and eventually, you know, I optimized things, got some more suppliers, figured things out. I would make anywhere between 2000 to $5,000 a month from, from that store. That's rad. Yeah. What's been your best year thus far? I mean, cause are you still drop shipping or you have the other ventures now? Yeah. So I, I've actually sold a few stores now, but, and it's kind of a, I guess a, a complicated model, but what I realized is instead of making, you know, two to five grand running a store. And I think a lot of people don't realize that even though we like to call it passive income, because most of the sales come in, all the sales come in while we're sleeping, mainly because of the time zone difference, you know, and you could technically do it from anywhere. You could technically automate a lot of things. You can outsource a lot of things. It's still running a business. It's still running, you know, I still have like having a full time, full time job, even if most of the time, you're logging in for an hour a day or two hours a day. You know, it's felt like having a full-time job. So I would, I sold the, you know, I would sell the store for normally three times annual profit, which is 27 times monthly profit. And I would have this chunk of money that I would put into investments and which would start bringing me in another stream of passive income. And I realized, and then I'll take a break. I would not work for three or four months. And I realized this is like a really nice model. So I've done that now four times. And actually just today, ironically, I started building another store okay. <laughs> with the goal of flipping it again 12 months from now. That's rad, dude. Yeah. yeah and in the speech you gave, you said that your best year, you made what, like 385,000 or something like that or 300 and something. Yeah. 325,000 dollars, which is insane because I never, ever would have imagined that was possible. Not even just for myself, but like, for anyone. I didn't, you know, I mean, it's kind of stupid because, you know, obviously there's plenty of people in the world, like not maybe plenty, but like there's people in the world who make millions of dollars a year, but I just never thought it would be possible for anyone I knew, you know, or, and definitely not for myself. Mm -hmm. So the fact that 
I mean, even a hundred grand a year, I really thought was going to be out of my reach in my lifetime or out of my friend's lifetime because my, you know, I would have been happy making $15 an hour. I think that was the goal, right? And the fact that I made over 300 grand in a year, and, and to be fair, a big chunk of that came from one of the store sales for 60, I think it was 62,000. Uh, so, but I mean, either way, it was just, it, it just all added up. And that's kind of what we talked about earlier, where having multiple streams of income and then having something you can sell, like that's how you get these big boosts. Absolutely. Yeah. What type of hobbies now do you keep yourself sane with? I mean, I know, like you said, you're not working like nine, nine hours, eight hours a day, but it still yeah. feels like a full-time job. So what kind of stuff do you do for fun? So now I focus a lot on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. If anyone you know, is, ever watches UFC or MMA, it's the grappling part of it. It's one of the few martial arts, you know, besides like boxing or Muay Thai, that you spar and it actually works in the real world. Uh, so I really like that. I still like to scuba dive. Uh, I'm actually going on a trip to the Maldives next month for 12 days on a boat. We'll have no internet for 12 days. I'm going to be diving with you know manta rays, hopefully whale sharks, just like probably other sharks as well. It's, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. That's awesome, dude. On a you know on a scale of, of a happy scale, yeah. you know based on where you came from and and, and how you kind of grew up and felt like you didn't fit in. Like where do you where do you see your life now? I'm a hundred times happier than I was living in California or, you know, in LA, it's still not perfect. I don't want people thinking I'm always happy because sometimes, you know, I'll go through slumps in my life. I mean, actually pretty recently, just like, you know, for the last couple of months, I was really kind of just, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know why. Cause I, it, there was no real reason to be in a slump. It just, I think part of it was just because I had gotten out of my exercise routine. My diet was really bad. So I just felt like shit, you know, I just didn't feel vibrant. I didn't feel, you know, and it, I didn't feel like I had that much energy and I'm glad we're talking today because I actually, I've been, I've been uh, intermittent fasting again. So I've had a bulletproof coffee today and it's like 5 PM and I haven't had my, a meal. I was going to eat actually before this interview, but the, the maid's cleaning my room and I feel great. I have so much fucking energy. You know, I started squatting again. I started uh, hitting the gym. And I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu again. I started eating paleo again. And I can tell, you know, even though it's only been a few weeks, that I'm back on that upward trajectory where mentally, you know, I'm more focused. I have more energy. I'm happier overall. My sex drive is back up. My testosterone feels higher. I'm just, like, more excited about life. And I want to get back to that point where I feel really, really good. And then I'm going to record a video to myself and just say, Johnny, don't ever fucking let yourself get out of shape again because you hate the way it feels when you are. That's a great idea. I like that. Recording yourself when you're at that peak performance and that peak joy, that peak happiness. So you can always look back and say, oh, that's what it's like. Um, what kind of goals do you have set for yourself at this point in life? Do you have any? Or are you just living day to day or what? Yeah, I wish I, I had like bigger financial goals. Uh, I think a, a part of that slump was I used to, you know, in the beginning, like, you know, I had these financial goals. The first was I wanted to be a Thai millionaire. I wrote about this in my second book, Life Changes Quick. You know, I started with $1,000 in the bank. I had, you know, a couple hundred bucks coming in every month. And my goal was if I can save up $30,000, which is about 1 million Thai bot, then I would be set. You know, and not that I would be set forever, but I would be set in a sense where if I ever wanted to take two or three years off of working, I could just coast off of that in Thailand like pretty easily, you know, cause you can get by here for 600 bucks a month. And it was kind of more of a buffer. It was more of a, a mental release knowing that if I can hit that goal, like I would never have to worry again. And it was so exciting. You know, I, I literally wrote a book about <laughs> this hitting this goal and how, you know, how I achieved it and how I felt. And from 30 grand, which felt like it was impossible, to you know, making the next 30 grand, my next goal after that, I was like, oh, I need another goal. And I was in Vietnam at the time. And I thought, okay, I want to be a Vietnamese billionaire, which is about 70,000 US. And when I hit that goal, I didn't even tell anyone. I didn't even celebrate. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, I didn't care anymore. And then when I went from 70 grand to half, 
half a million dollars, like $500,000 in net worth, which you would think would be a huge celebration. I didn't care either. Like it just didn't, it didn't feel any different. It, it's, it's, I know some people listening to this will, you know, think I'm an asshole for it, but, or some people might be relieved that money doesn't really matter that much. Does it like, I'm not any happier today, you know, or having, you know, 500 grand in the bank than it was having 30 grand. It was, it's literally the same feeling. Uh, if anything, it made me more depressed thinking like, oh man, it's going to be so hard to get, you know, to be a millionaire. And then thinking, okay, if I had a million dollars, what would I do? And at first being excited and then thinking like, okay, I can't even afford to buy a house in California. Like I can barely, you know, buy a condo. And then, then what? I'll have zero. Mm-hmm. Like, and then I have a liability and these maintenance fees. And I just got really depressed for a while thinking like, like it doesn't even fucking matter. It doesn't, it doesn't buy you shit. Um, and I think finally I figured out my goals, like money-based goals. I think in the beginning to have that buffer is really important, but anything aside from that is, is really useless. Uh, so now my only goals is I want to get back in shape. I want to always feel good. Cause I know that if I can just hit this one goal, everything else falls in place. So that that's my goal, not only for this year, but for the rest of my life is just always be at peak performance, feel good, be in shape, have the energy, and then everything else comes second. Nice, dude. I like that goal. That's a good one. Um, so right now, if the audience want to check out what you got, you got johnnyfd.com. That's your blog. Yeah. I'm posting on that, what, monthly? A couple, yeah, I would say a couple times a month. Um, but a lot of my old posts are really good. So if you know, anyone wants to know, like, for example... I've been posting my income reports for the last three years where I literally screenshot my dashboards and just show you exactly how much money I spent every month, how much money I made from what sources. Uh, they're less detailed now just because they take so fucking long to write. But if you go back two years, you know, or where right when I started, I would literally spend two days, you know, show like breaking down the accounting of every single thing I, I did. Uh, and I would say the second most kind of popular posts are my, my travel posts. So whenever I go to a new country or a new city and I spend, you know, a few months there, I write everything about that city that I would want to share with friends or I want to remember for myself. And I share that. That's awesome, dude. And then you also have a really cool podcast called Travel Like a Boss. Yeah. So the Travel Like a Boss podcast is, I would say, three times a month. It used to be weekly, but uh, I've kind of fallen short on that now, uh, mainly because it just takes, it's, they take so much time, right? As you know. Um, but those are interviews with people who I meet while traveling to have a location dependent business who are making money online. And the reason why I love doing it, it's not only talking about the travel and the lifestyle of it, but also kind of figuring out different business models that work for people. That's rad, dude. And then I'll put in the show notes, all these links, but then just to remind us the books that you have, um, yeah. online right now are what? Yeah. So you can just go to Amazon and buy it if you want, or you can Google it. 12 weeks in Thailand, the good life on the cheap and life changes quick. You're the man, dude. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. I mean, for me especially, I can relate in so many ways um, as I can picture your trajectory going up, you know, and it's been a really pleasure meeting you and I hope that we get to maybe chat again in the future. Yeah, it's been really fun. And anyone who's listening to this, Chiang Mai is an amazing place. It's full of artists, entrepreneurs, you know, yogis, digital nomads, people doing Muay Thai, you know, just like it's really a good spot. And if you want to hang out in person and meet, not just me, but you know, 400 plus other people, the digital nomad conference is we call it the nomad summit. That's every January. So the next one's January 19th, 2019. You can check it out, watch videos from the previous years and get tickets for the next year. Nomadsummit.com. It's, it's, it's probably like the, the best way to see what's possible because you, you meet so many people who are doing the same thing. Thanks brother. Yeah. Have thank you. Fun, man. Dude. It's been fun. Awesome. Thank you so much, Johnny. I really appreciate your authenticity, your transparency. You know, you really show us the vulnerability in which you felt for a lot of your life and then the steps you took to design the life that you're living now and making really good money at it. So congratulations, my friend. We are tremendously inspired by you and keep doing what you do. Remember, if you're a new listener, please pull out your phone and subscribe. 
Please rate, please comment. This really helps me in the ratings. If you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do it at Patreon, at Misfits and Rejects, a monthly donation. It's all appreciated, not expected. Following on Instagram is cool too. You get to see me, how I'm designing my life, where I'm going in this world, how I'm meeting these people. You also get to see the faces of these people that I'm meeting and the environments that we're having a lot of these conversations in. So be sure to follow us. Follow Misfits and Rejects on Instagram. And I want you all to know I think you all are very beautiful. I wish you all the best this year, 2019. Let's make it a good one. We only get one shot at this. Please stay tuned. I have a lot of great episodes coming up with some fascinating, fascinating people I'm meeting over here in Asia. And I'm just going to keep rolling out all these really inspirational episodes for you. I hope this helps. I hope that you are finding some motivation to go out and design the life that you've always dreamed of. And with that said, again, I think you all are so very beautiful. Much love. See you next episode. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out and spread your wings and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.